Romans 3. It's the scripture for this evening. Page 1750, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Romans 3, verses 21 through 25. God's word given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This is probably the the most well-known, perhaps the the most popular uh, hymn in English, probably around the world. And it's beloved for one simple reason. There is no one who has ever lived as a Christian who has not known those very words to be true. Universal, the Christian experience. To understand the gospel is that God has saved you from sin, saved a wretch just like me. If we know nothing else, if we know nothing else about salvation, we must know that in Jesus Christ, God extends his grace to sinners who do not deserve it. But beyond that, we see that grace is a unified work of the, of the entire trinity, The Godhead, all three persons working together to bring God's grace to the world so that sinners might experience the forgiveness and the redemption that comes through the gospel. One theologian said that salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, and brings us home to the Trinity. And when we start to see that the grace of God is a unified work of the Trinity, Grace becomes just a little bit more amazing. But we'll consider some of that this evening as we consider the principle, the guiding, the guidepost of the Reformation, grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. We do it by considering this passage in Romans. We see the Father is the starting point of grace. The Father is the starting point of grace. The Son is the saving point of grace. And the Holy Spirit is the seeing point and sustaining points of grace. If salvation comes from the Trinity, it's good to have an idea in our heads of what the starting point is. All persons of the Trinity work together at all various various times when God is doing anything. 
all three persons involved in all the works of God. But we think specifically of of one of the three persons connected to a specific part of redemption. So the Father is the starting point of grace. Before we dive deeply into that, probably good for us to consider what is grace? What is grace? In general, we say that grace is God's giving what is not owed. God's giving what is not owed. When we think of, of grace in this way, perhaps we could think that creation is almost an act of God's grace. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer to the Father, You loved me before the foundation of the world. And to this pre-existent, this world pre-existent love between Jesus and the Father, we could add the Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity enjoying a perfect love amongst one another from all eternity. God is love. And that was true of God before the world existed. God did not need to create the world in order to have something to love. Therefore, God did not need to create the world. He did not owe the world anything. He did not owe us anything before he created us. So perhaps we could think of creation as a a gracious work of God. And in a sense, that's true. In a sense, that's true. But when we speak of the grace of salvation, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Redemptive grace is different than just something that is not owed. There's something else to it. And that's normally what we find when we see the New Testament talking about the grace of God. It's speaking of the grace of God that's experienced in redemption. It's not just that salvation is not deserved. Our, Our life and our existence is not deserved. God did not owe it to us to create us. But to speak of salvation, saving grace in the same way, would be to to miss, really, the the sharpest point about what the grace of God in salvation is. J.I. Packer is one of the most well-known theologians of of the 20th century, certainly within the Reformed world. He has described the grace of salvation as this, quote, God's single, huge, mind-blowing plan. I kind of smiled when I came across that because here you have this brilliant theologian trying to describe the grace of God and it seems that technical words of of theological jargon are defying him. He can't sum it up in words. He says it's God's single huge mind-blowing plan. It's miraculous. It's miraculous. And it's miraculous because in saving grace, it's not just that God gives us what we do not deserve, it's that he gives us the very opposite of what we do deserve. He gives us the very opposite of what we do deserve. God is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. We see this about his character in the Old Testament, don't we? Even from the beginning of of the world's history, God is a God who is just, who is righteous, who is holy. He will by no means clear the guilty the guilty. The perfect love and light and life that he has in himself is so perfect that it it can't be tainted by sin. It can't be darkened by the presence of any unrighteousness. This is the thrust of all that comes before our passage tonight in the book of Romans. Romans 3.21 is a huge shift in the letter. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. All that comes before it is a reminder of human sin. 
It's a reminder that all human beings have broken the covenant which God made with human beings at creation. It's a broken covenant. There are curses involved with a broken covenant. There are consequences. The Apostle Paul lays it out and says, it doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, everyone is guilty before God. This was a key starting point for the Reformation. Universal sin and recovering the importance of understanding our place because of sin. One of the errors in the medieval church was that they had started, they had tended to talk about salvation not in terms of grace and sin, but grace and nature. They started talking about uh, human nature in a way that uh, the sacraments and life in the church would elevate your nature to participate in the divine. There are various problems with that, but the one we most clearly see is you can begin to think of salvation from God completely absent from sin entering the picture. And it is God who created you. So if the fault is inherent in your nature, the problem is not your sin, but the fact that you are human and therefore not divine, wouldn't it then be upon the fault of the one who created you? They had lost this relationship between grace and and sin. This is why all of our reformed confessions make it a point to say that man is responsible for the fall. Man is responsible for the sin and the death and the condemnation that is in the world. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is in control of all things. But that does not negate human responsibility and human responsibility for sin. Humans are responsible. So the the broad concept of salvation cannot be that it's our nature that must be elevated, but rather that our sins need to be forgiven. That's what the grace of God is. The grace of God is introduced because we have a problem that our sins need to be forgiven. For you were dead in your trespasses and sins, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. God used Martin Luther to show the the futility of the errors that had crept into the medieval church. The problem is not that we're human. The problem is that we're sinful. Luther was a faithful monk. He was a faithful monk with a tender conscience. He used to annoy his fellow monks and and the priests. He would constantly be going around trying to, to find any sense of assurance he would confess his sins all of the time, and it, was, it consumed his thoughts. He did this because he went to scriptures, and what did he find? He found the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, and he knew you could not avoid it in scriptures. And he felt no matter what he did, he could not be sure that he was in possession of this righteousness. Why should I think that I have the righteousness of God? I've, I've looked within myself. I've found nothing that I'm satisfied with. How could God be satisfied with anything that is in me? It was in these first chapters of Romans that he had his aha moment, his light bulb moment, realizing that he would not find the righteousness of God from within, but he would find the righteousness of God from without. For Martin Luther, this happened for him in the early 15th century, early early 16th century. But for God, it comes as his plan that was formed from eternity past. God is a God of grace. God is a God who, whose divine plan was to be a God of redeeming 
grace. In our passage, we read that this righteousness of God, the righteousness found in the gospel, comes apart from the law. Paul says it comes apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. One of the chief ways in which the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness of God is is by showing universal sin. It's almost as if you could think of the Old Testament as God taking a panoramic view of all of humanity. You see that a couple times in the book of Genesis, don't you? A panoramic view of all of humanity. Where will there be a righteous one? Where will there be a non-covenant breaker? Where will there be one who earns heaven? There is not one. There is not one. There is no one righteous. So we read that God has manifested the righteousness of God apart from the law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. Something manifested. In other words, something rooted in the plan of God. God knew that it would happen. It just had not yet been revealed. The Apostle Paul uses the word mystery in the New Testament. And that's not you know, sort of the, the, the modern usage of the word mystery. It's something that was hidden. Hidden in the plan of God. The eternal plan of God. But then is revealed. God's plan never changed. God's plan was never adjusted all through redemptive history. God did not look around and change his mind. It was rooted in his decree. Since the Reformation, there have been those uh, who say that God was, was, was trying in the Old Testament various things. I'll try this for a while. I'll try this for a while. And then that doesn't work. That doesn't work. No. From all eternity past, the Father and the Son covenanted together that Christ would come. To redeem his people. All of the Old Testament points to Christ. It was all to show that only he would be the one who could earn heaven for us. Every page in the Law and the Prophets whispers the name of Jesus Christ. Whispers the name of one who will come. Who will be righteous. Who will be faithful. As the demand for righteousness goes forth, comes back, and finds nothing. It shows us that there will be one who will fill that void. Jesus said that he had come to complete the work that the Father had sent him to do. It was the guiding will of the Father that sent the Son. In verse 25 in our passage tonight, we read that God presented him or put him forward. The point is that although Jesus had come to earth to accomplish all that he did in history, there was this bond, this agreement that goes back to all of eternity. We read last week in Luke, didn't we, that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem just at the time that it was appointed for him to do so. He knew his time had come to ride into Jerusalem, and nothing would take him off of that path. Why? Because he wanted to submit to the will of his Father, to remain faithful to his Father's will. Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep in the book of Hebrews by the blood of the eternal covenant. It's rooted in eternity. But the Father had planned all that was going to happen in redemption. This is the starting point of grace. The Father's will. In the Son, we see the saving point of grace. The saving point of grace. We spoke earlier of Luther's aha moment. His his light bulb moment when he's considering the righteousness of God. But it was his torment that God used to bring him to a moment of revelation granted to him in in God's sovereign grace. He realized that while he was uh, right in seeing the centrality of the righteousness of God, he had 
failed to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that the righteousness of God is not a demand, it is a donation. The righteousness of God is not a demand, it is a donation. The word of the gospel is not recognition that God finds a person satisfactory. The word of the gospel and to be saved by grace alone is a declaration that God makes you satisfactory. God makes you exactly that which you cannot become on your own. You are saved by grace alone. He gives to people what they could never give themselves, what they could never gain themselves. He is a God of redeeming grace. Later on in Romans 4, we read that Paul will say that God justifies the ungodly. We just read in in Proverbs 24, didn't we? That if anyone calls the wicked righteous, it is a scandal. If anyone calls the wicked righteous, it is a scandal. On the surface, we might think that of God. God is looking at sinners and, and he is calling them righteous. It's almost as if he's disobeying Proverbs 24. Except for Christ. Except for Christ. And that is why we need to understand that the righteousness of God, which, which Jesus wins for us in his life, that is what is granted to us through the grace of God in faith. We are justified what, as Paul says in tonight's passage? Justified by grace as a gift. The righteousness of God is not a demand. It is a donation. It is a divine gift. We are justified by grace. Easy way to remember what justified means. It's a a kind of a theological jargon kind of word. People might think no use for it today. Uh, Disagree strongly. Easy way to remember it. The Heidelberg Catechism talks about two things that happen in justification. God sees me justified. God sees me just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd lived like Jesus. That's what it means to be justified. God sees me just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd lived like Jesus. This happens because in Christ there is redemption. Christ is the center of our redemption. The medieval church had started to fall into this error of human religiosity. It was this rigged system It was a way to make people think that they could manage their sin, pay indulgences, trust the infused grace that comes to you through the sacraments, trust that your nature will be elevated and perfected through your baptism. It was this this rigged system that told people they could manage their sin. If you go to the scriptures, you cannot manage your sin. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? God looks around and he does not find anyone righteous. We need to be saved by grace. If you are a control freak, this probably agitates your sensibilities a little bit. Grace is is about relinquishing control. We cannot control our sin. We cannot manage our sin. It needs to be washed away by the grace of God. Everything about us, our our natural tendencies in our thinking is always that God will reward our moral striving. God must reward our moral striving. The cross cuts into all of that thinking. And until we get our brains wired around the idea that we are saved by grace alone, that it is God's grace that saves us, we will not fully grasp it. Grace flies in the face 
of all of that. Even our vainest accomplishments tend to stay with us. We, we, we like to glory in the things that we do. That's just human nature. I was, this, this week I was considering that, and I, I did a search on the internet of the strangest Hall of Fame museums. And if, if you're interested, you can go and do that too. There's a Cleveland-style polka Hall of Fame. There's a, an insurance agent's Hall of Fame. You know, we tend to glory in our accomplishments. We obsess over it. Grace cuts into all of that thinking. One of Martin Luther's theses read this way. It said, The person who believes that he can gain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. If you think that what you do, if you think that's how you earn grace, you are adding sin to sin. The righteousness of God found in Jesus Christ is a divine Gift. We are prepared to receive the grace of Christ only when we despair of our ability to justify ourselves. When we despair knowing that we cannot, we cannot measure up to the demand of righteousness. The cross refutes all human religiosity. Because while everything inside of us stores up wrath for the day of judgment, Christ is the one thing that turns away wrath. Our performance brings wrath upon us. Christ turns away wrath. That is why Paul calls him in verse 25 a sacrifice of atonement. The Greek word there is a word that you can translate it in English, propitiation, which is another long word, but a very important word. A word that ought to belong to the church. It's a word that simply means something or someone who turns away wrath. Christ is our propitiation. Wrath is is upon us because of our sin. Because of his sacrifice, because of his blood, the wrath of God is turned away. God does not put the benefits of Christ up there on a mountain and say, "Here's here's what my son did for you. Now go up there and get it. No. He gives it to us as a gift. A gift. The word there is used in verse 24. A gift of grace, not just unmerited favor, demerited favor, not just what is not owed, the exact opposite of what was owed to us. And not just before the Reformation, but since we have con- continued to, to kind of make a mess of these things. And there have been many Protestant scholars in the centuries after the Reformation that went back to the Gospels to to read about Jesus' life and to study Jesus' life. And they're asking the question, why are these Gospels written? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why are they written? What's the point of them? What should the church get from all of these Gospels, these different accounts of Jesus' life? And some would end up saying that the main point of the Gospels is that we would have an example for how to live your life. An example for how to live. In other words, the Gospels are this big sweeping example of what would Jesus do. That's the primary, that's the primary use of the Gospels. But the grace of the Gospel says that before we take Christ as an example, there are indeed many times where we need to take Christ as an example, but before we take Christ as an example, we need to be ready to receive him as a gift. Before Christ is an example, he is a gift to us, a gift from the Father, our salvation, our redemption, the one through whom we are justified. 
The cross of Christ destroys every, uh, every human religious system that's built upon our rational minds that would say God must reward our moral striving. God must, must reward all of the things that I try to do and merit before him. The cross of Christ says that it is only by grace that we are saved. If there were, if there were some other way to make us right with God, do you think he would have given his only begotten son for us? It is by grace, it is by Christ that we are redeemed. And then the spirit is the seeing and the saving, or the seeing and sustaining point of grace. One of the, the criticisms of the Reformation is that it was too preoccupied with this transaction of, of our sin and, and Christ's payment and then how there's that divine switch of our sins upon Christ, Christ's righteousness upon us. So that was the criticism. Too, too much emphasis on that. But what that misses is that the Reformers emphasized time and time and time again the work of the Holy Spirit who, who ties all of this together. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who opens our eyes to see the gospel, who then illumines our minds to the word of God in an ongoing way and then builds us up and sustains us for a, a holistic approach to the Christian life that glorifies God in and through the things that we do, in and through the grace that is given to us as we live and walk and go through the Christian life. We read in scripture that God dwells in unapproachable light, don't we? We read in 1 John that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We know from the beginning of Genesis that God creates light in our material world. He does it by the the word of his mouth. In 2 Peter, we read that God's word is a lamp that's shining in a dark place. So God dwells in light. God is light. His word is light. All of that is wonderful truth to think on. But the problem is that while that is true, humans in their sin are blind. Humans in their sin are prevented from seeing all of this light emanating from God all of the time. If you're blind and you cannot see, your eyes cannot take in light. You will not be able to see it. Thus, whenever God's word goes forth, there is the light of his word, but in and of ourselves, we can't distinguish or have the ability to even see it. John Calvin put it this way, God shines forth upon us in the person of his son by his gospel, but that would be in vain since we are blind unless he were also to illuminate our minds by his spirit. This is what the spirit of God does in salvation. The Spirit of God opens the eyes of his chosen ones to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is the seeing point of grace. Without the Spirit attending to the gospel being preached, our eyes would never be open to the truth. Faith is also called the gift of God. It's a gift of God given to us. We cannot figure out how to believe, just like a blind person cannot will themselves out of their blindness. They don't decide one day that they want to no longer be blind. There needs to be some benevolent act from outside that needs to come from outside of them. Whether it be a miracle of God or some procedure of modern medicine, something else needs to be introduced in order for their blindness to go away. And the ability to see the light of the gospel 
is all of God's grace. It's a work of God's grace through the Spirit who opens our eyes to see, removes our veil of ignorance. So the Spirit then, through the Word of God, through the sacraments, through the fellowship of the church, continues to open our eyes more and more to see the grace of God in the gospel. The book of Ephesians says that in the gospel, we become children of light. So we go from God dwelling in unapproachable light, God's word is light, God God himself is light, human beings can't take that in because they're blind, the gospel is preached, the spirit attends to that word effectively, opens our eyes to it, and then through the spirit's ongoing work, we then become children of light. Colossians 1 calls us a kingdom of light. Father, Son, Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity being actors in grace, they're involved in our redemption. So then God doing all of these things opens our eyes to see the light so that we might go into the world and be the light. He opens our eyes to see the light so that we might go into the world and be the light. This is what grace is, to be saved from sin. It is all of grace, grace alone. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, and I'd just like to read this passage for us in closing. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, tre- in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word. We thank you for the grace of the gospel. May we continue to love it more and more. May you break down the tendency we have to to want to look at what we do and think of it as meriting your grace or earning your grace. May the cross destroy every rational thought of man-made religion. May you continue to show us more and more the glory of, of Jesus Christ in your great gospel. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. We end tonight by praising the triune.